Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Carlos Kotkin. My wife said, you're absolutely doing that because we have a two-year-old and I need to find out if you're dying because if you are, I need to make plans. She didn't, those weren't her exact words. <laughs> that was the subtext. That and more. But before that, folks, we have another Risk live stream happening on Friday, May 14th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. We will have Jay Rohr, Ryan Estrada, Jen Montooth, and Tiana Kerg. That is Friday, May 14th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. That's 6.30 p.m. Pacific time. And you can find the tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Our last live stream just knocked it out of the park and was sold out. So be sure to get your tickets now at risk-show.com slash tour. Also, if you love what we do here on Risk and over at the Story Studio, become a member over at patreon.com slash risk. You will have access to dozens and dozens of hours of bonus content, lots more stories, interviews with staff and storytellers, my own personal check-ins. Your help is hugely needed, and we are hugely grateful for it. You can find all that at patreon.com slash risk, or if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Atmosphere behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Sidetracked. Three stories, funny, scary, weird, all over the map. And a couple of them are old ones that were shared at live shows that we've never run, you know, live shows in front of audiences that we've never run on the show before. So I'm always excited about that. Guys, we have had so many wonderful workshops, both corporate and regular workshops over at thestorystudio.org recently. I just had a wonderful one for the Queens Community House where they work with LGBTQ youth. And my goodness, I wanted to feature every story that was told during that workshop on the show. <laughs> it all, it's always so exciting to me how in these workshop environments, people bring stuff in where I'm like, uh, please come back to us with that on our show. Julia Whitehouse, who has told some absolute classic stories on the show over the years, she is one of our faculty members at thestorystudio.org, and she is teaching a two-day 
online group storytelling workshop. It's a level one. So if you've never taken a storytelling workshop before, jump on in. It's Tuesday, May 25th and Thursday, May 27th from 7 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern. You can find info about that and so many more storytelling training opportunities at thestorystudio.org. Let's jump into the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear an extraordinary story that Aaron Jones shared a couple years back about working in the mental health field. But before that, Leslie Goshko is back on the show after a long, 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 long time. Leslie was on uh, some of the very, very first episodes of Risk. You can find Leslie at lesliegoshko.com. And here she is now with a story we call What's in the Box? Long before the pandemic, I was a germaphobe and a hypochondriac. So the pandemic was and is my nightmare. Far into the pandemic, I still was not leaving my house. I definitely was not going out to shop for things. I wasn't going out to eat. Everything that came here was from online delivery. And we weren't ordering like fun things. We were getting deliveries of blood pressure medication and giant underpants. I was ordering an inordinate amount of giant women's underpants just because I wanted to be pandemic comfy. So around the holiday season, our building got hit really hard by porch pirates. And if you don't know what porch pirates are, they are assholes who will come to your house or your building and steal your packages. And when we figured this out, I was irate. Everything was already hard enough with the pandemic, things in the news were horrible, I was already losing faith in humanity, and now some asshole is coming and stealing our packages at the holiday season? But I decided not to take it lying down. I set up every delivery notification I could for every delivery, and as soon as I would get that ding on my phone, I was flying down the stairs of our building to get that package as fast as I could. And sometimes I would win, and sometimes the pirates would win. So close to Christmas, my dad called me, and he said that he was sending me a Christmas gift. And my dad is in his 80s, so it meant a lot that he made the effort to go out and send this to me, and I told him, I will get this package. I set up the delivery notification, and one day, ding, my phone goes off. Your package has been delivered. I fly down the stairs as fast as I can. Couldn't have been more than a minute. And it's gone. They had already taken it. And that's when I lose my shit. I go back up to my apartment and I'm yelling to my friend on the phone how horrible everything is. And they took this and I can't believe it. And she jokingly says, you know, you should put out a decoy box of shit. And I laughed. I said, yeah, yeah, I should put out a shit box. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I should make a shit box. Now, I have standards. I'm not going to shit in a box, but 
I have a cat who shits in a box every single day. So I set about making my decoy box. I had a fake label of shipping and postage and fake name, decorative tissue paper in there just to make it extra nice. And then I fill it with the contents of my cat's litter box, which I have let accumulate extra. And I fill it as full of cat shit as I can, along with a note in there that says, fuck you thief. I got it all sealed up so that no smell could go out and I brought it downstairs. And I don't even put it inside the security door. I put it outside so it would be easy to take. I thought this will be gone in a couple hours. I go to my apartment in a couple hours, I come back down and I couldn't believe what I saw. Someone has brought the box back inside so that it is safe in the building. I immediately pick it up and I bring it back outside and I figure I'll leave it overnight. There's no way it will make it overnight. The next morning I wake up like it's Christmas morning. I run down the stairs and I can't believe the horror that I see, which is worse than the day before. Some other good Samaritan has brought the box back inside into a safer location in the building. Now I'm getting pissed. I take the box out for a third time and I leave it there for several days. By the end of the week, I go down and check. It is beyond belief. It has been brought in again and is now sitting safely by the mailboxes. I leave it there till the end of the week where I check and it's safe as it was when I checked all the other times. And while I'm trying to figure out how to now dispose of a box of cat shit, I am buoyed a little bit. My faith in humanity has come back because of a boomerang box of shit that my neighbors and good Samaritans looked out for. Hi, um, there's a lot of you. Um, okay, so just so you know, I changed a couple of things in the story. Anything that was identifying, uh, like identifying the man in the story. Um, but in 2013, when I was 25, I was knocking on my client's door, and I could hear him, and I knew he was just ignoring me. So I'm pounding on his door for a couple of minutes, and finally he peeks his eyes out of the blinds, like a little tweaker, and he says, "Who the fuck is that?" I'm like, "Hey, Alex." It's Aaron. Will you let me in? I don't know any fucking errands. Go away. Alex, you come and see me almost every day. I'm coming to check up on you. I haven't seen you in a week. Go the fuck away. I don't know you. And then he disappears. So I wait outside for a couple more minutes, and then he opens the door. And he opens the door with these full arms and this total shitted and grit out his face, so happy to see me. He's like, Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. I just had to make sure it was you. There's a lot of people coming by who they're not really who they are, and so I had to just make sure it was you before I opened the door. I'm like, that's okay, cool. Let's go inside. So we go inside, and he grabs his vacuum, and he starts 
singing to Elvis Presley that was playing. And he's performing for me, and he's doing these big, rapid, jerky movements, which was really, really unlike him. He's normally a very calm and hilarious man. He has this just absolutely adorable, playfully mischievous energy to him. And the man standing in front of me was not that man. Uh, finally, he was done with his Elvis song, and I tell him how great it was, and he says, oh, thank you for coming to my show. I know you're such a big fan. Thank you, thank you. And I said, yeah, that was awesome. So, so how are you doing? He's like, well, how did you like my show? I'm like, do you remember who I am? It's Aaron. I'm your counselor. Aaron? Oh, I didn't come to group. I'm like, yes, exactly. That's why I'm here. You haven't shown up in a week, and I'm worried about you. It's like, yeah, I've been having a hard time. Um been going through a lot of stuff, and, and I'm like, yeah, I can see that. There's a bunch of empty beer bottles all over and a, some weed and pipe and stuff, you know. Because um, I was a substance abuse counselor. That was my main area of working. And, and he's like, yeah, you know, it's been rough, and it's just helping me. I know I shouldn't be doing it. You tell me all the time I shouldn't be doing it, but I have to do it right now. I have to. And I see a bunch of packets of medication that he hadn't been taking, and so I ask him about it, and he's like, well, why would I take those meds? You're trying to fucking poison me. I know those medications are just trying to open me up. I'm not going to take those fucking medications. After that, he starts to get really agitated. He puts his hands over his ears, and he gets really loud. And he's pacing back and forth in his apartment, and he's yelling at me. And he's like, why the fuck did you break in here with my neighbor? Why the fuck did you guys come in and steal my DVD player and throw food all over the fucking walls? Why would you do that to me? I thought you liked me, Aaron. Why the fuck would you do that to me? If you fuck with me, I'll put you in the ground. And here I am, 25, with a man twice my age who is uh, psychotic and delusional and feeling pretty nervous, which was the first time in my career that I had started to really feel uncomfortable with a client. Uh, I was alone, which wasn't normal procedure, but we were short-staffed that day, and so we had to do what we had to do. And I asked my client to go out and walk. I'm like, Alex, let's go outside, you know. And he thinks about it for a second, and he's like, okay. So we go on this walk, and we're talking about the sky. He's like, look at the sky. You see that cloud? It's turtles. It's so beautiful. I'm like, yeah. Listen to the birds. And he's like, oh, my God. Do you hear the notes those birds are hitting? It's so beautiful. And he starts to calm down, and we're walking slower. And his voice gets really lyrical. And then he sees a tree, and he stops me. He says, look at that tree. Looks like the time-space divided into three parts and became the tree. Isn't that fucking amazing? Isn't that so cool, Aaron? Look at tree. Look at tree. And he starts to have these really disorganized thoughts and pressured speech again. And so we just keep walking. And there's a man up ahead of us who is taking his three children into a minivan. And we're walking, and my client stops, tenses his whole body up, and he turns to me in a really quiet voice, and he says, that man, that man is stealing those children, and he's going to take them up to the mountains, and he's going to eat them. And I stop, and I put my hand on Alex's face, and I said, that is not what's happening. That's a father is taking his kids to go do something fun. That's not what's happening at all. And he's like, okay, okay. A minute later, he's like, no, really, we have to go fucking save them. That man is going to eat those children. We have to go now. And I'm like, let's go back to your house. So I go, and I put my hand on his shoulder to turn him and to bring him back to his house. Before I know it, he's across the street. And he has jumped on top of the roof of this car, and he's punching the windshield, screaming at this man, get the fuck out of the car, I'm going to save those kids, you cannibalistic fuck, I'm going to fucking kill you, get out of the car. By the time I get there, the father is out of the car, and he's obviously livid. He's this big man, and he has clenched fists and a red face, he's screaming at my client, I'm going to fucking kill you, get away, you psycho fuck, get the fuck away from me. My, 
my client, Alex, is sitting there screaming that he needs to protect these children. I'm going to protect them. I'm going to keep them safe from you. You cannibalistic fucking fucking hate you. And there I am, you know, 25, in between these men, screaming as well to try to get the father to hear me. And all I can do is just scream, like, please, listen to me. This man is sick. I am trying to handle the situation. I need you to get into your fucking car, and I need you to go away. Please just go away. Take your kids. Keep them safe. I will handle this situation. Please listen to me. And then the father hears me, and he stops, and he turns to me in a really concerned, sweet voice, and he's no longer red in the face, and he says, are you going to be okay? And the only thing I can say is, sure. (laughs) I had never dealt with such aggressive psychosis as this, and especially by myself. The man gets in his car, and the cops pulled up earlier. I had gotten a hold of my team, and they sent out specially trained cops to come deal with uh, severely mentally ill people. Um, and they get, by the way, did I say I was working for a severely mentally ill place with extensive criminal history clients and drug abuse? That, that's who I hung out with all day. Um, and so these cops come, they put my client in handcuffs and I give the rundown and I go over to Alex and, you know, I'm like, I know you've had a really rough day and here's what's going to happen. You're going to get pink sheeted, which means you're going to go to the hospital for three days and they're going to try to stabilize you. And he's sitting there with his arms behind his back and his head down low in a really childish, scared voice. He says, I'm so sorry, Aaron. I don't know what came over me. I know that I'm sick. I know I need the medication. And the alcohol and the weed, it's not helping, but it's helping. I don't know what to do. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to scare anyone. Do you forgive me? And I reassure him. I say, of course, you're not a bad person. You're just sick right now. We're going to get you better, okay? Okay, okay. His head's down. A couple seconds later, he pops up. And his face is rigid and his eyes are full of hatred. And he says, fuck you, bitch. You fucking did this to me. And when I get out, because I will get out, when I get out, I'm going to find you and I'm going to fucking kill you for doing this to me. And never in my life have I been so happy to see a client in handcuffs. Uh, <laughs> which is a lot. And uh, I, I was genuinely scared of this guy and working with these guys for such a long time I had never been scared of a client so we get him to the hospital everything's good and I go out to my car and I have a total breakdown my body starts shaking and I start screaming and uncontrollably crying I can't think I can't speak I can't move um I mean I was scared of my client but that wasn't it for the first time in my life I was scared of myself um because me and Alex share the same disorders uh, I'm schizoaffective bipolar type 1. And I also am in recovery from addiction. And in uh, 2007, I was in an outpatient rehab for heroin and meth addiction. And it was this really safe and secure place, and I had a counselor who I super connected to. And I'm walking out of group one day, and she pulls me to the side. Her name was Jocelyn, and she says in this really sweet, low voice, you know, this is something really hard to talk about, but do you see shadow people? And I got super hot and tears started pouring down my face and I was so ashamed and I was so embarrassed and I was so angry and I told her to fuck off and I left because I do see shadow people. When I was in sixth grade in like 2000, my very first hallucination was I was standing at the top of the stairs and the man from Scream ran into my field of vision and I knew he wanted to kill me and then he ran away. And ever since then, I see these murderous 
male figures uh, out of the corner of my eye in any dark spaces in the backseat of my car under my bed, uh, standing when the lights are off in front of me. So I went in the next day back to Jocelyn, and I told her this. She's like, okay, let's get you to a psychiatrist. And she had me start writing about my experience until I met him, so I kind of knew what to say, and I started to notice things about myself. Um, when I get really anxious, I can see and feel bugs crawling underneath my skin, and the only way to make it stop is to scrub my skin until it bleeds. If I don't do that, I go into severe panic attacks where I'm in a ball on the floor and I can't think, move, do anything. It's always really noisy in my head, I noticed. Uh, I constantly hear background chatter and background music. I hear sentences. I hear alarms going off. I hear phones ringing, things like that. I can never tell if they're real or fake. I get really paranoid about completely insane shit. Like if I'm having sex with my boyfriend and he says, Aaron, I know he's talking about my stepsister named Aaron. I also get these highs where I'm on top of the world, I feel amazing. I can do anything and I can do everything. I speak really fast, I move really fast. I can go without days without sleeping completely sober. And then I'll crash and I'll go into these depressions where I'm, all I can do is fantasize about suicide. I sleep 15 hours a day, taking any movement physically hurts me. The only thing I can do in that state is harm myself or get fucked up in order to be okay with going on for another day. So I go to my doctor and I get diagnosed and I was so fucking happy about that. I had a reason why it felt like I didn't get the guidebook to life all of a sudden. I wasn't a failure, I was chemically imbalanced. And I was so happy, I went and I told everybody and the response that I usually got was no shit. Everybody fucking knew except for me. <laughs> but, you know, happens I guess. Um, so that day with Alex showed me the darkness of my disorder that I had never seen before. For a long time, I used it as a cop-out or excuse sometimes to get away with shit. And I got to see the true side of it. I take seven little pills every night. And those little pills make it so that I'm in control. My emotions are not controlling me. My hallucinations are not controlling me. My paranoia, none of it. And if I ever choose to stop taking those medications or they just stop working, which happens, I could easily destroy my life, harm other people thinking I'm trying to protect them or harm myself. And I started to identify too much with my clients after that. So I needed to take a break from counseling and I quit. And I found a vocation that was super cathartic for me. I get to a glass now, which is something I really needed. And after a bunch of therapy and and being able to get lost in glass for a while, I, I was able to face a lot of my demons in relation to this. And this past Monday, I started grad school to become a marriage and family therapist so I can still help people because that's my calling in a way that's not as intensely looking myself in a mirror every day. That experience with Alex gave me a respect for who I am and how fragile my brain is and how I need to be so fucking grateful that... I get to live my life the way that I decide to live my life. I just get to be me. Thanks. Baby. I shouldn't have gone to text to myself. All this flex ain't good for my health. So much cake, give a man diabetes. Fat so thick, he can never go vegan. Got my bundle straight from Brazil. Leave me on dead. I can sign a Wilhelmina Wanna keep coming like you got diarrhea Hey, I know my baby love me 
This is Risk. This is Kirby behind me now. And we just heard from Aaron Jones. Before that, a little something from Leslie Goshko. And that one was edited by our own John LaSala. Well, folks, I'm doing something totally ridiculous, purely for fun. I am hosting an interactive online viewing of The Big Lebowski via this platform called Sidestream.com. I'll be on screen alongside the movie, riffing on trivia and interacting with you guys in the text chat. A little bit like a mystery science theater sort of fun time with one of the best comedies ever. You can get tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. It's Thursday, May 20th at 9.15 Eastern time. The movie itself will start at 9.30. Let's get to our final story today. This one was recorded in Los Angeles at a Risk show many years ago. It's great to have him back on the show because this is another person who was on a lot of the earliest episodes of Risk. This is Carlos Kotkin coming up. You can find Carlos at carloskotkin.com and here he is now with a story we call A Minor Procedure. Everybody, thank you. Yeah. So about two months ago, I went to my doctor to get a physical, which I do every year. And every year, the doctor says, everything's great. Go out and enjoy life and have a good time. And thanks for stopping by. But two months ago, she said, there's one thing. Everything's great except for one thing. We have detected some microscopic traces of blood in your urine. And that could be nothing or it could be something. So I'm going to send you to a urologist so we can further investigate. I said, okay. Never been to a urologist before. Not good with the doctors in general. The most that I can handle is when they take your blood pressure, the thing that squeezes your arm. That's about as far as I can go with the needles and the blood tests and all that. It's like, yeah. But they're sending me to a, a urologist because I have microscopic well, I can't see it, but it's apparently it's there hiding. So I go and I I meet this urologist whose name is Dr. Ehrlicher, and he's uh, got a white mane of hair that it, he looked like a science laboratory person. And uh, he walks in and he asks me some questions and he reviews my uh, my my lab results that I had taken and he said um, the same thing that the first doctor said it's it could be nothing or it could be really serious so we need to find out and what we're going to do is we're going to give you a, a procedure called a cystoscopy have you ever have you ever had one of those and, and i said no i i haven't i've i've never even heard of that uh what is it and he said oh it's a really simple procedure uh what we do is we take a strobe with a camera and we insert it into your penis and it goes straight up your urethra into your bladder, and we have a look around. It's, it's no problem. And, uh, and I, I said to him, I've, I've, I've never had that done. Uh, I would remember something like that. And also, I'm not doing that. I'm not ever doing that. 
And he said, like we've been telling you, it could be nothing, but it could be very, very serious. So I thought about it some more, and I said, I will take my chances, because I would rather have something serious than somebody sticking a camera up my... And I told, I left saying, I'm not doing that. I feel fine, goodbye. And I left, and the person who changed my mind was when I got home, my wife said, you're absolutely doing that. <laughs> because we have a two-year-old, and I need to find out if you're dying, because if you are, I need to make plans. She didn't, those weren't her exact <laughs> words. That was the subtext of what she was saying. And so I very grudgingly called Dr. Ehrlicher's office and some woman named Linda answered and I said, hi, I need to schedule a cystoscopy. I was crying almost. And uh, she's very chipper. Okay, uh, is Tuesday good for you? Great. It was two weeks, two weeks from the call. So I had two weeks to think about it. And as I was on the phone with her, I jokingly, jokingly said, asked her, I said, do, do you ever hear people scream during the procedure? And what I wanted to hear was, of course not. No, no. Uh, she said, sometimes. Uh, sometimes if people don't relax. So do your best to relax when they're. And, uh, so she said, if it helps, you can bring music. You can bring a playlist, like on your phone. And I hadn't thought of that until she said I could do it. And just like immediately I thought, oh my God, I got two weeks to come up with the playlist <laughs> for my cystoscopy. And I don't know why, I'm not a huge fan of theirs at all. Uh, I mean, I, I like them, but it's not, it's not like I have posters ever, and never had. But as soon as she said I could have music, the first song that popped into my head was Erasure, uh, uh, a little respect. I have no idea why, but I just started hearing, uh, uh, oh baby, please give a little respect to, I was so in love with the whole thing. I thought that'll help me when I'm on the table and they're doing their thing. I don't know why, but so I thought about uh, my playlist. I thought about a lot of things in those two weeks, all having to do with the cystoscopy. That's all I could think about. It was just, I was just so anxious and I, and I thought, about uh, worst case scenarios, like uh, like what if the doctor sneezed? That'd be, yeah, bad, right? I thought about that. I, had, I asked them, uh, another question I had was, can't you just put me under? Can't you like put me in a coma for an hour or whatever? And they said, no, no, we can't because it's so quick. It's gonna happen really quick. We're gonna be in and out of there. It's just gonna be like 10 minutes. Like, I, like my penis is a drive-through. We're just gonna go <laughs> in and out. So it's, we can't put you under. Just take deep breaths and, you'll li and listen to your music and you'll be fine. A and I made the mistake of uh, doing some research on YouTube uh, <laughs> and I watched some cystoscopy videos. There's an animated one that uh, if you ever want to be horrified, uh, find me on Facebook and I'll send you the... <laughs> um, and and the, the whole two weeks was very... Uh, very difficult, very psychologically it was difficult. And then the day arrives, and uh, to help me relax, because I was so anxious, that morning I scheduled a massage. So I thought maybe, you know, the, the balance, the earth. Uh, and and I, so I went and got a massage, uh, and uh, she was a woman uh, from Thailand. It was a legitimate massage. Not saying any, that, anyway. Uh, <laughs> her, name, her name was Ploy, 
And uh, she came in and she asked me what, what brought me, why I wanted a massage. And I just told her, I said, there's a doctor that's going to be doing horrible things to me later. And I want to re- relax today, at least for the morning. Uh, I told her what they were doing exactly. I said, there's a cito- have you ever heard of a cystoscopy? She hadn't. I explained it to her. And she said, oh, you're scared. Uh, yes, I am. She said, it's okay, it's okay. They need to check your uterus. It's okay. <laughs> I said, all right. So... She gave me the massage. It was fine. It was a fine massage. And uh, and I get up and leave. And and she says, uh, Okay, Carlos, uh, good luck today. I I hope you get lucky, is how how she phrased it. And uh, so I thanked her. I left. And then a few hours later, I'm in the waiting room of uh, Dr. Ehrlicher's office. I'm nervous and I have to pee. And I, and I think I should probably do that just to make it easier for them because the camera, I don't know if it, if it gets wet, if it gets damaged, or <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so I go and I find a bathroom and I, and I pee and I come back and I sit down. And as soon as I sit down, this nurse comes out named Brian. He's very clean cut, tall, very friendly, a younger guy. And uh, he, he, asks, he says, Carlos, yes, that's me. Uh, he says, I'm going to be your nurse, come this way. And he gives me a cup and he says, uh, could you do me a favor, could you pee in this cup? And I said, I, I just did. I just, I just peed. And uh, he said, well, can you, can you try? I said, I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how. He said, like, kind of like Salvation Army, whatever you could give would help. <laughs> and I said, all right, I will try. And so I go back to the bathroom, and I'm positive that I'm not going to be able to donate very much for their, whatever they're doing. So I don't even stand by the toilet. And uh, I, I, to my surprise, uh, going right away like filling it up really fast like where did this come from I just I wasn't in tune with my body because I was so anxious and I filled it up and I still had to go and because my brain was the wires were crossed I guess I I didn't it didn't occur to me to just take two steps to the toilet and keep going I just removed the cup just took away just pissing all over the floor like a maniac just watching, watching myself do it, like an out-of-body experience. I, just, yeah, I, I thought, I distinctly remember thinking, huh, I guess I'm nervous. Just pissed all over the floor. And I finished. Uh, I, and I closed it. And, and I went to, found Brian. He was very excited. He's like, wow, great job. I said, I know. So, <clears throat> So we're walking down to the room where we're going to do the thing. And uh, I said to him, uh, I was honest, I confided in him. I said, I am not looking forward to this, Brian. And I want him to say, it's going to be fine. Just like I asked Linda, did people scream? No, no. But she said, yeah, sometimes. So Brian, I'm not looking forward to this. And I'm waiting for him. And he says, "Uh, I don't blame you. So we go in this room, and there's a table where he says, lie down. He says, I'm going to prep you before the doctor comes in. So uh, take off your pants, and I'm going to wash your penis. That's not awkward at all. And uh, so I do. I get on the thing. I'm in a gown, and I, I'm naked from the way he lifts the thing. And I, I stare at the ceiling. I try not to make eye contact. And uh, he's washing my penis. And uh, I remember thinking, uh, this is what a great way to spend a Tuesday afternoon. All, all I need is somebody to feed me grapes, and I'm, I would be, this is, this is actually kind of awesome. Uh, 
and I told him, I said, Brian, I have my, uh, just so you know, I have my playlist ready for, I got my phone. And he just starts laughing. <laughs> and he just takes my phone and puts it in this little locker area and no, no music. So I'm not going to have erasure to get me, help me through. Uh, and he's, uh, he finishes and uh, I'm lying there naked from the waist down. He's standing next to me and Dr. Ehrlicher walks in. He looks at me and Brian and he says, what is going on here? And I thought, oh my God, Brian doesn't really work here. <laughs> oh my God. He's just a dude in a, that just came in. <laughs> and then he, the doctor starts smiling and like, ah, he made a joke. That's great. Okay. So. so he walks up and he looks at me and, and uh, he says, uh, everything... Just relax, take a deep breath, everything's gonna be fine, don't worry about it, okay? And then there's a monitor above my, sort of right to my left above me, and I, I could've watched the, the live uh, telecast if I, <laughs> if I wanted to, but I decided to keep staring at the ceiling. But Brian's pushing buttons and moving around, he's standing at the foot of the table, and he's moving around and pushing I don't know what. But every time he does this, I distinctly feel his penis on the ball of my foot, and I was thinking, does he know that he's doing that? I mean, I, when my penis is touching something, nine times out of ten, I know, <laughs> I'm aware. Is he is he so focused on his job, or is he trying to give me signals, or I don't, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't going to inquire. I just I let it be, and uh, I continued staring at the ceiling. And then we get to the point where Doctor Ehrlicher says, "Okay, here we go," and uh, gentlemen. Um, if you've never had a, a camera inserted into your penis, uh, I can tell you exactly what it feels like. It feels like a camera is being inserted <laughs> into your penis. Uh, it's not pleasant, unless for some people maybe it is. I don't know. Not for me. <laughs> I didn't like it at all. And uh, the intensity of the pain just kept getting worse and worse and worse until I finally, I was trying to relax, but it's really hard. And no pun intended. That's terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible. And uh, I finally, I, I started shouted out. I just couldn't help. I was just shouted out in pain. And Brian put his hand on my left thigh, and immediately soothed me. I was just, I was okay. And thank God for Brian and his warm hand. <laughs> it got me through it. Yes. Applause for Brian's warm hand. <laughs> and then the the doctor, uh, he said. There's nothing here. You're fine. You're totally fine. And it was, it literally took minutes. They were absolutely right, in and out. And he said, you're fine. And I, I asked him, if I'm fine, then why, are, why is there microscopic traces? And he said, it just, you know, it happens. I've seen a thousand patients like you, which in my mind translated to, I've seen a thousand penises like yours. <laughs> uh, and it was interesting to me because for that two weeks, that's just all I, all I could think of was the horror and how am I, I can't do this and I don't want to do this. And it was like a vice in, on my head. And then the whole, the actual thing took three minutes over and done. And it, I'm sure there's a life lesson there. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure there's something there. So the doctor wished me luck. And he laughed, and I sat up, and, and Brian was there, and I thanked him for helping me get, get through things in my time of need, and I said, and hopefully I'll never see you again, ever. And, uh, and he laughed, and he said, at least not here, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I laughed with him, but I was thinking, no, I don't want to see you anywhere, ever. I don't. I don't want to run into you at pavilions with my wife. This is Brian. He washed my... I don't. 
I don't want to do that. Uh, I'm probably not going to do that. I'm probably never going to see him again. But uh, I would be lying if I said that we didn't bond in that room. <laughs> we did. We did bond in that room. And uh, another time, another place, another sexual orientation. Who knows what would have happened? But uh, uh, being perfectly honest, I think. Uh, in the same way that, that uh, Humphrey Bogart and Igmar, Igmar Bergman will always have Paris, uh, me and Brian will always have the cystoscopy. <laughs> Thank you. For this week's episode, folks, this is Robert Palmer behind me now, and we just heard from Carlos Kotkin, who you can find at carloskotkin.com. Folks, I said it before, and I'll say it again. The next Risk live stream show is Friday, May 14th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, and you can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Have you ever wanted to share an anecdote on the show, one of those super short stories like the one that Leslie Goshko shared at the top of the episode tonight or today or whenever you're listening to this? Well, now everything you need to know about pitching us your anecdotes is at risk-show.com slash anecdotes. Or if you want to submit a regular-sized story to us, that's at risk-show.com slash submissions. Don't forget you can follow us on our socials. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. The Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook is a great place to talk about the podcast. You do have to answer a couple of questions to prove you're not a robot or whatever. So be sure and do that. I'm always confused if some people aren't seeing that or if some people are robots. And then there's our subreddit, at Risk Podcast. And folks, did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling training? I am currently helping someone with his podcast, someone else with his memoir, recently worked with some folks on job interviews sorts of stuff. It's really, really wonderful fun to work one-on-one -on -one on storytelling with a coach. I've taught lawyers and doctors and teachers and preachers and activists, life coaches, you name it. You can find me at kevinallison.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Dr. 
you know, but it's a thing, you know. Um, 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 and um. Yeah. Um, uh, so. Nah, 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 nah,